Welcome to Vision Drip, a podcast designed to give you a steady drip of our vision, mission, and DNA to establish and refine the gospel culture at Sacred City Church. I'm your host, Pastor Sam Schmidt, church planter and pastor of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. I am so excited to have you with me as I hope this podcast helps to equip you as a disciple of Jesus in the everyday rhythms of life as we set out to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. Not only do I hope that this podcast helps you grow, but it would grow your affections for Jesus. So let's dive into this episode of Sacred City Vision Drip. Thank you all uh, for being here. I know everybody's busy, stuff going on, uh, but it means a lot to me that you take time out of, out of your week, your Sunday evening, uh, to be, be here. Um, these, these seminars that I'm planning to do over the next several months are really a part of this Feast to Flourish campaign that we launched at the beginning of the year. Um, about this time last year, this Feast to Flourish campaign was birthed out of a growing concern um, that I had for for our church, for the health, the vitality of our church and its members. Um, and I noticed a couple of areas that were, we generally, like generally speaking, almost everybody needed to grow in as a church. And I would say everybody can grow in. Um, the first one is just an exposure to God's word um, through some conversations over, over the, you know, conversations. It became very clear to me that too few people were reading and studying their Bible on a regular basis. It always seemed kind of hit and miss, not a daily discipline. And so I really noticed that we, we just had starving Christians, Christians that were there, they loved their Bible, but weren't really going to it on a regular basis. The other thing I noticed as we don't go to our Bible on a regular basis was a lack of understanding of God's word. Um, especially when it got to complicated topics. Uh, we didn't understand what it said. We didn't understand, uh, because we didn't understand what it said, we didn't understand uh, how to apply it today. And so not only were we starving Christians, but we were blind Christians trying to make our way through this world without a light, without a flashlight to our feet. And the third thing that I, I realized that this all kind of leads up to this is, is that there was just a lack of, of love for God's word. Now, I know everybody here would say, man, I love God's word, thumbs up. If, if God's word had a Facebook page, we all like it and say, yep, I'm here for it. But what I'm talking about is this deep-seated conviction to allow the word of God to be the final arbiter on all matters, to, to love the word of God so strongly that, that it's like we crave it, we long for it, and, and it's, we're glad when it intersects uh, with our life. And, and because of this, we didn't have a love of God. I think this contributed to a fearfulness among Christians, not just in our church, but among the, the evangelical world where we didn't understand, we didn't have that anchor, we didn't have that steady, steady fixture in our life. And so like the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians, you get tossed to and fro by every, every wind of doctrine. It's just not a good way to live. And so um, this gave me the idea for, for this, this three-pronged approach for our Feast to Flourish campaign um, that's been sort of developing throughout the year. First was the chapter day Bible reading plan. That was a big part of, of helping everybody get their nose in the Bible on a daily basis. 
Um, earlier in the year, the, the second piece of this was helping people to, to read the Bible in a meaningful way, not just go to it and, and check the box, but have a meaningful interaction, to a, a devotional, a reflective, let, let the word of God read you, right? That kind of read the Bible type stuff. And so we had Bible 101, Bible 201, and then now I'm, I'm leading us into these biblical worldview seminars, and this is meant to help us to think and live biblically. So all of this stuff, like building bricks, stacking up on top of each other, uh, and so that's why you're here tonight. That's why I've been spending time preparing for this. We all want to know what it means uh, to have and to live out of a biblical worldview. I, I, I would imagine if I took a poll, every single one of us would raise our hand and say, yep, Sign me up, okay? And so we're signing you up for that right now. Um, but here's the thing. Actually, this isn't that shocking. So I got some shocking things to say. This is not one of them. Um, oftentimes, just to help kind of clear up some language, when you, when you hear lang- talk, talk about uh, a worldview, a lot of times Christian worldview and biblical worldview are used interchangeably. That's totally fine. Um, I, I, think, I think you can do so. Um, they are essentially the same, but for the purposes for tonight um, and just moving forward, I want to intentionally refer to it as a biblical worldview, okay? A couple reasons for that. One, I think there are a lot of Christians that think, I'm a Christian, therefore whatever worldview I hold must be a Christian worldview, right? I'm a Christian, I've got a worldview, therefore it's a if de facto Christian worldview. Well, that's simply... Not the case, because a lot of times, while, while we have pieces of a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, Jesus is there, we, 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 have a rever- uh, uh, we revere the word of God, uh, but, but, and it might compose a piece of our worldview, but the entirety of our worldview isn't always thoroughly biblical. Um, there, there are other influences that go into shaping the worldview that we have, uh, and we're going to talk about the origins of worldview later on. Um, and therefore, because the Bible isn't, isn't the, the only thing shaping our worldview, it's an inconsistent worldview. That's one of the advantages, that's one of the, the glories of a Christian worldview is, is God doesn't lie. And when God speaks to us in his scriptures, it's always consistent. You know that. If you tell a lie and, and you've got to keep adapting to, to fix, uh, fit, fit a lie to make that fit within the narrative, it just compiles and compiles. And before you know it, you've got all kinds of contradictions. God doesn't lie. And so when we go to God's word, he's telling us the truth. And that truth is worthy of building our lives on. Um, and so it's good to have a thoroughly biblical uh, worldview and, and remove all kinds of inconsistency, inconsistencies. The other reason why I want to call it a, a biblical worldview is, is because this undeniably links us to the scriptures, right? To call it a biblical worldview, it's not some like new age Christian or it's some sort of like Lutheran Christian or whatever, you know, whatever extra adjective you want to put on top of it or, or descriptor, it's a, a biblical, it's the scripture, the word of God uh, that's speaking to us. So we're not, we're not going to group consensus, we're not going to um, what, what the br- best and brightest scholars of the day and age have to say or, or experts in various fields. What we're doing is we're going to the word of God because it is, in fact, reliable um, and authoritative. So here's my aim for tonight. This is on your sheet just to help us kind of keep things in perspective. My aim in these seminars, and tonight specifically, but for all of them following, is to help you develop a consistent and comprehensive biblical worldview. That's what we want to do, a consistent and comprehensive biblical worldview. So a worldview that's comprehensive in the fact that that it touches on everything. 
that when Jesus says that I, I am Lord, when Jesus is Lord of all, it means that he's Lord of all, everything. Everything is under Christ. So it's comprehensive in the sense that everything is included in this worldview and consistent in the fact that there, there are no discrepancies, there is no lie, it is completely truth-based, therefore it is consistent. So the way that you do that is by uh, being rooted in the scriptures. Yeah, they're in the middle here. I bet somebody would hand it to you so you don't have to walk all the way around. Um, so what, the way we're gonna develop a biblical worldview is by being rooted and continually being reformed by the scripture. So we, we just can't, there's no point in this thing where we depart. You know, it's, it's always here. Or, or we hold on to it real tight. And, and this is exactly following uh, the Apostle Paul's logic of Romans 12 too, where he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may be able to discern the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect, right? Going back to the scriptures, that reformation of the mind, of the heart. Now, I think it might, that, that verse, when you, we say here, uh, discern the will of God, what is good, it's acceptable and perfect, one of the things that we come up against, we, we see that and we think that that sounds presumptuous. It's presumptuous of, of us to be able to say that we know the will of God, that, that we know what is good and uh, acceptable and perfect, um, but the word of God gives us such confidence and clarity uh, in a large amount of areas, in a large amount, probably way more than what you think, um, that we can actually say in a lot of places, this is the will of God and is good and acceptable and perfect to live in this way, okay? That, that's the kind of confidence the word of God gives us, the biblical worldview can give us. Now, paradoxically, this is not arrogance, that, that's one of the perceptions. You say something like that, you make a truth claim, an absolute truth claim, there's this instant pushback of, what, like, who are you to say that? Who are you to, to make such a claim? Well, to make such a claim is not arrogance, rather it's real humility, okay? Um, whenever we suggest that we can go beyond God's word, that is pride, that is arrogance. Whenever we think we know better than God, that is pride. So, Instead of that, what we're saying is God knows best, and we are placing ourselves underneath. So having a biblical worldview actually demonstrates true humility because we are placing ourselves under God's word, okay? So clear up some of that smoke. Now, as we get into this, I want to invite you to have humility, as we start talking about biblical worldview. It's easy, I think it's easy to get defensive um, when, when things start getting revealed or, or, you know, I don't know how it's all gonna go down, but I know for me, it was like kind of alarming as I started seeing some stuff come up in my own worldview. And so I wanna invite you to have humility, have a willingness to lean into your learner identity uh, and be pre prepared to be challenged and, and, and maybe you'll even see some gaps in your own worldview uh, be exposed and just remember, this is God's kindness to you that as he, he shows you these gaps, he's inviting you into a more robust and biblical worldview, which is an invitation into him and into a deeper confidence of God and deeper love of God's word. Now, I say all this because um, my experience of developing or growing in my, my biblical worldview uh, was this thing. Um, and it really got put into overdrive a couple years ago, two, three years ago, is when I really started 
realizing that I had some gaps in my worldview, things like um, all the, the hubbub around COVID, uh, the government mandates, the restrictions, uh, they're issuing out new tax credits, not sure how to think about that. You've got things like critical race theory going on, critical gender theory going on, and all of the LGBTQ plus issues. Um, you've got issues of the economy and inflation. All of these things um, spike a giant question mark of how do we think about these? How are we as Christians supposed to think about these? Um, and while I wasn't clueless about what God's word has to say to those matters, I, clear, I, I, I was not as confident in them as I should have been, um, which made me susceptible to being swayed by other Christian leaders who were just more confident in me but also than me, but, but also lacked that thorough biblical uh, worldview for themselves. And so um, I, I experienced those gaps, and then what, what confirmed that for me, what sort of like said, yep, you got some work to do, Sam, uh, was that I, I went through a peers assessment. It's a worldview assessment that's developed and facilitated by the Nehemiah Institute. It's probably the best biblical worldview assessment. Um, it's, it, yeah, I don't need to talk about it, but it, it's a great resource. Um, and that, that exposed to me some stuff that I needed to work on in my biblical understanding. That, that sent me on this this journey um, that not only deepened my love for the word of God um, and confidence in the word of God, but made me eager to share it with all of you um, and hopefully bring you into this journey along with me uh, as he grows us and helps us make connections that we probably haven't made before. So that's why, that's why we're here. That's why, that's my heart for this night and all of these seminars and, and why we're doing this. Now, I, I want to, to put a disclaimer uh, up here real quick because I don't want you to have unrealistic expectations that you're gonna walk out of here tonight with a, a complete and comprehensive and, and consistent biblical worldview, okay? We're, we're gonna get the ball rolling. Actually, I don't even know if we're gonna get the ball. We're gonna talk in, in large part about the idea of a worldview, and then in the following ones, we're gonna start getting into some of the, in the weeds on some of these specific issues. So, but I wanna get the ball rolling on this because it's really important stuff, and uh, I hope it helps you. So let's start with this. Let's start by de defining our terms. Some, just shout out to me, when you think of worldview, what comes to mind, or what, what's a definition that, that you've got uh, of worldview? Perspective, okay. Interpretation. Yep, okay. Beliefs. Anything else? Convictions. Yeah, that's good. That tells me that we're all kind of thinking in the same stream here, um, which will be helpful. Now, I want to offer you a technical definition. Uh, it's on your sheet of paper there. Um, and then we'll break it down from there. Here's a technical definition from James Sire, who wrote the book, The Universe Next Door. He says, a worldview is a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story or in a set of presuppositions, big words, Assumptions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, which we hold consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic constitution of reality, and that provides a frame foundation on which we live and move and have our being. Tracking? No. Let's break it down. Um, the first thing that we need to see, that a worldview is fundamentally about a faith 
or belief about ultimate reality. So a worldview is first and foremost religious. A worldview is first and foremost religious. Now that doesn't mean it's only for religious people. All, all people have a worldview, okay? Everybody is operating with some kind of a worldview, Christian or not. Um, and, and this this worldview that they have is rooted in some kind of belief of something or another, okay? There's, there's on, the, on the ground level, it's a faith commitment. Now, this kind of blows up uh, the atheistic worldview <laughs> um, because they say there is no God, but that itself is a faith claim, right? So that worldview is operating on the faith claim that there is no God, which I think takes a lot more faith to believe than that there is a God. So good for them. Um, so that's the first thing. A worldview involves, uh, first and foremost, is religious. Now, the second part is, uh, as, you, as we're breaking down this, um, a worldview is a, is, involves the heart and not just the head. So he says it's a fundamental orientation of the heart. So a lot of times when we talk about worldview, we're, we're thinking up in the brain, which definitely up in the brain, but it's not just in the brain, it's, it's in the heart. That means um, what we do to here tonight isn't just intellectual, it has to deal, a worldview deals with what you love. Um, much, like, much like what education is. Education isn't merely a, trans, uh, a, a transfer of information from one dome to the other, it's a, a shaping of your loves. You're trying to form you and shape you to love what is good and beautiful and true. That's what education is ultimately about. So the way that, that this works is I can, I can know something in my head and my heart is detached from this. Well, that, that's not gonna be my worldview. My, my worldview is going to operate, link both of those things together and, and chase after what I love. Um, and so I, I, I might know, for example, I might know the components of living a healthy lifestyle. Like I, I have that understanding that I need to stay away from these foods, I probably need to get this much sleep, I need to exercise, you know, I can have that. But if I don't actually love health, then I don't have a healthy worldview, right? That I got the, the bits, but I don't love it. So the loves and the intellect have to be uh, linked together. Now this is why uh, the author Wendell Berry says, it all turns on affection. So everything you're about, the way you view the world, the way you make sense of things, it all turns on affections. It all turns on what you love. Um, what we love compels us uh, and directs us to point our loves or to, to point our lives at that thing. So a worldview is just as much, if not more so, about the heart as it is the mind, okay? Follow me there. Now the next one. You break it down, he goes, it can be expressed in a story or a set of presuppositions. So he says, a worldview is a set of, of presuppositions. Presuppositions, it's a big word, uh, but to presuppose something is, is to mean, uh, it means to believe something before belief knowingly kicks in. So it's like this, this foundational belief, um, a first principle belief, something that that is like uh, crucial for your operating system. That, that if you are a computer and the way that you compute things, like these presuppositions are the hard, hard drive or the whatever, the infrastructure that allows your system to set up. Um, and so these are things that we assume to be true. And what he points out here is that they can be um, true, partially true, or entirely false. So your presuppositions, a, a 
It depends on if it's true, partially true, or entirely false. That's gonna determine if you have good presuppositions or faulty presuppositions. The other thing he tells us about a worldview is that it is linked to a story. So this also gets into the heart level. So a worldview is not just about doctrines. It's not just being dogmatic about things or truths. Um, though they are, they're pre- pre- present. They're, man, I'm going to have a hard time talking. Okay. Um, those doctrines and truths are present, um, but a worldview is also a story because it tells the story of, of where we came from, where we are now, how we got here, and ultimately where we're going. There's, there's always a story involved in a worldview. That's how we make sense of our, of our existence. Um, so th- there's going to be a story that's, that's present, um, and a good worldview is going to have a comprehensive story that makes sense of everything, right? It's, it's gonna, every question mark, it's gonna provide some kind of answer to, maybe not to the fullest of what we want to know, but it's at least going to address it in some some capacity. So your worldview is not only a set of presuppositions, but it's also linked to a story. And the story that we believe, the presuppositions that we hold to, can be held consciously or subconsciously. That's the next set of blanks. A worldview can be consciously held or subconsciously held. Everybody has a worldview but not everyone is aware of how their worldview affects them. Now, some people are, which means they're conscious of this worldview. They, they, they know how it informs their life. But a lot of people have, are subconsciously uh, operating from a worldview that and maybe they don't even know what it is. They don't even know what the framework is or what guides them in this capacity. So um, it could be, Conscious or subconscious, the next piece, consistent or inconsistent. Worldview can be this. Now, what's going to reveal the consistency or inconsistency of our worldview is the correlation between what we believe or what we say we believe and how we live, okay? So if I say I'm a big health nut and I'm, you know, I'm pounding country style every night, there's an inconsistency there, right? That's pretty easy to see. Right, and, and we see this all over, all the time. Um, well, I don't, I don't. Well, I don't have time to get into. It. But yeah, you, you see this a lot of times. Um, the inconsistencies of people, it, it's it gets linked up with hypocrisy. They say one thing, they want to be compassionate, and then they're doing something that's the opposite of compassion. Right? We kind of talked through some of that a couple weeks ago. Um, so this is something that that um, consistent or inconsistent. Finally, a worldview provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our beings. You cannot operate outside of a worldview. You can't. There's always a worldview and you are operating uh, within it because ideas have consequences. What you think will affect how you live and it will inform the entirety of your life. So one of the misconceptions about a, a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview, is that it only speaks to spiritual matters. Right, just, just in the matter of like soteriology, like uh, of getting saved, of being saved. But a biblical worldview is comprehensive. Every, everything is covered under this. So um, now let's just talk about this real quick. So I, I like all these. Um, I do wanna ask you though, if we're, what are the things, if we're saying everything's affected by our worldview, what are the things that will be affected? Give us, let's put, Let's put a name to these things so it's not so vague. What, what are the things that your worldview will affect? 
finances. Keep them coming. Family life and relationships. Politics. Education. Anything else? Work. Yep. The economy would be be a big umbrella. Raise your kids. Is that what you said? Yeah, I'll put that. Family life. That's good. Welfare. Yeah, social issues. What's that? Charity? Yeah. I'll put that with charity too, or welfare. Yeah, I mean, and there's still more. We could throw healthcare in there. That would be a piece of the puzzle. Um, trying to think what else. Well, your worldview will affect how you consume content, like how you watch TV, the kind of media, like the videos, the music you listen to, your worldview is going to affect that and be affected by it, actually. Um, religion, we didn't, we didn't get that one in there. which seems like a piece of low-hanging fruit, but it, it's there. Yeah, all kinds of things that are our worldview um, influence. Now, let me, let me jump from this and talk about three metaphors about, uh, of worldview. So the first metaphor uh, is that a worldview is a lens. I like that because you see perspective, perspective. Um, that, that one's really helpful. The, the worldview as a, a lens. Uh, it puts everything into perspective, and everyone is wearing a set of lenses at all times, which is helping them read the world, themselves, and God. Now, um, you've probably seen my three older boys. They all have got glasses. They're all very blind. Um, and it is paramount that they wear the correct lenses in order to navigate successfully. They are also a little bit clumsy. Um, and so if they don't have the right lenses, they're gonna fumble their way through um, their existence. But in having the right set of lens, it allows them to see clearly in order to navigate the terrain, right? So that's what, it restores vision, it restores our perception, it restores our sight. So worldview as a lens to view things through. The, the worldview is also, uh, you can think of it as a compass, we're talking about the heart. It's not just the intellect, but the heart. Um, our, our, our worldview is like a compass that orients us toward, it points us toward the true north, right? The good life, the, that what is beautiful and good and true, the things that are worth pursuing, a worldview will inform us of that. It'll, it'll calibrate our compass and set us on that trajectory, that, that telos. So it's kind of like a compass. And the other way, is, is a worldview is like a map. Um, a compass can't tell us how to get somewhere, but it can tell us which way we're going. A map, on the other hand, shows us how to get from point A to point B. It, it guides us through this world. Um, and whatever, whatever worldview you hold is, is ultimately taking you from one spot to another. It's 
It's going to, by default. It's ultimately going to push you like a map. It's gonna give you a guide. Now, the, the question is, is it a good guide? Is it a good map? Is it a, are they reliable lenses? Is it a compass that's broken, or is it trustworthy? That, that's the big question about worldview. Everybody has one, but are those things true of it, okay? You, you following me now? Are there any questions so far about what we've covered? Okay. Okay. So let's say everybody's operating with a lens, a compass, and a map. Everybody has a worldview. The next question is, where did it come from? Where, where did this worldview that you have, um, what are its origins? Um, so let me, let me ask you that, just throw it out to you. When, when did you think, when do you think you got your worldview? What's the time domain on that bad boy? Childhood? Okay. That's a very formative time. Any other ideas? College? What's going on in college? <laughs> New ideas. A lot of debt. Okay. Any other times of life where your, your world, I mean, it's okay. You already had one, being born, your, your initial worldview in the family life. Got that? But what are other points in this timeline where your worldview would be challenged or, or reoriented or, or something happened to alter it? Career. Career, yeah. That would have an effect on it. The kind of people you're around. Crisis, Crisis. okay. Marriage. Okay, so your city might play a role on that. Live in a deep red state or a deep blue state, that might have, a, have an effect. Yeah, conversion. Yeah. Yeah, just being around, absorbing some of that. Yeah, yeah, those are all good things. All of these things um, have gone into shaping your worldview. You, your, your worldview is never static. It, it's always morphing and changing. Now the question is, what is it changing to? That, that's the big question we would ask. Is it changing in the right direction or in, in the wrong direction? Since your early years, it's been developing. Um, that's the, the original way that you've been able to make sense of, of your world, um, but rarely is this worldview static. So let me hit three things, three ways, three origins of your worldview, um, and, and they kind of zoom out compared to what you guys just talked about, give some big categories. First is it's an inherited worldview. Um, you are born into a family and a specific socioeconomic status within a unique ethnic culture. And so just your proximity, where you physically are, the space you occupy, the home that you grew up in, um, that is going to be the starting point of, of your worldview. Now, this, is, this can be great or this can be garbage, because if your parents are operating from a biblical worldview, that they're passing on to you, it's a great inheritance, right? They've, they've seen themselves up, they've developed their worldview, and now it's, it's like a, it's, it's better than getting a big check when your parents die. It's, it's a, a biblical worldview, nothing better, promise you. You cannot give your kids anything better than a biblical worldview, but they, they give that to you, you grow up in it, you start developing your own, right? That, that's a good thing, but if your parents don't have that, 
then it could be really hard to get situated. Life can get really complex, really hard as more and more stuff gets uh, thrown at you. So the first set is, is just an inherited set uh, of your worldview. The next one is imported. This is what we're talking about. So all of these, these life uh, changes that have happened, um, you go to school, whether it's just going to grade school or going into college, these things are affecting your worldview, whether it's from the curriculum to the culture to the other kids that you're interacting with, school will affect your worldview. The same thing about that content that you're absorbing, books and movies and music, um, any kind of media, whether it's um, social media or like news outlets, all of this stuff is going in. It's, it's either bolstering your worldview, it's something that's reinforcing your worldview, or it's challenging your worldview. Um, but, but oftentimes, if you're not aware of it, you, you can get morphed into whatever's getting pumped down your way, okay? Friends also. Friends or, or big life uh, changes, those, those can have a, an effect on your worldview um, where it's either going to challenge or reinforce uh, your worldview. Now, when this happens, this transition from an inherited worldview into an imported worldview, um, typically is there a clean departure from one to the other. There, there becomes a bit of a hodgepodge of a worldview. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. And this is kind of where, like, if you want to think about it in church terms or even the story of God, this is where a lot of syncretism starts to happen. A little bit from here, a little bit from there, a little bit from there, 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 and you start to piece something together. But if you start piecing things together from different places, guess what happens? You can have a consistent worldview or an inconsistent worldview. Inconsistent, right? So, um, that, that's one of the things that you have to watch out for is how, we, how we're building. We don't want an inconsistent, we want a consistent um, worldview. So as we get these, as we're wrestling with the, the inherited, the imported, we have to ask ourselves, is it reliable? And, and what's, what's the status of reliable? What's the standard of reliable? It's, it's God's word. He, he doesn't tell a lie, okay? Um, we're asking ourselves, can I trust it? Is it true? And this is, this is really the foundational shift in, in worldviews when we're going through these transitions. I'm asking these questions probably subconsciously. Is, is it true? Can I trust it? Um, does it help me? It, we kind of get into this utilitarian mentality. Do, think, does thinking this way help me? Um, does it make me more successful? Does it help me successfully navigate the world? Does it make me more, I mean, there's a whole laundry list of questions that can be asked as we're making these transitions and, and, and changes um, in our, our worldview. Um, so, but there's a third place. There's a third origin of our worldview. And this is where our Christian worldview comes from. Um, and that is the Bible that's your origin, the Bible, um, or, or you can say in this way, revelation. God's revealed word shaping and informing and creating for us a, a new, new worldview to operate from. And when I say revelation, I, I don't mean some sort of like apocalyptic neon sign that's like, think this, think this, think that, you know, it's flashing in the night. Um, it, it's it's a, rav, a revelation in the sense that God has all wisdom, all treasures of wisdom are hidden in God, and he discloses them to us in his written word so that we would glean from them. And so these words do not come from man. They come from God. It's, it's graciously uncovered for us. Um, and, and at the center of this revelation is this. this. This is the key. Jesus is Lord. At the center of a biblical revelation is Jesus is Lord. 
Now this goes to show that worldview, again, is first and foremost a faith commitment. Say Jesus is Lord is a faith commitment. Jesus is my authority, that Jesus is, you go, he's my savior. You go, talk about all of the things that Jesus is, it brings you back to a faith commitment. Not only that, it attaches you to a story. And we see that if Jesus is Lord of all, everything else in the world revolves around him because as Colossians 1.17 tells us, he is before all things and he holds all things together. So a a, a biblical worldview, a, a worldview that comes from the revelation of God's word is going to be radically Christ-centered and realize that Jesus is touching every square inch of your life. As nice as it would be, when you become a Christian, you do not instantly import a biblical worldview, right? It's not like the matrix, you know, plug in and download and, all right, good to go, walk out of here now. Right? This is a slow, it's, it's sanctification of the mind and the soul. Um, it's something that, that you've got to work through. It's, it's something that, that God in his grace through, through the years and faithfulness, he will increase. And he gives you, going back to those metaphors, he gives you a new lens to view the world through. Right? You can see clearly. Uh, Francis Shaver talks about a Christian worldview in the sense of it's not just helping you see things, it's helping you operate in true reality. That's the way it is. The, tr the true reality. Every, every other worldview cre creates a fuzziness, an optical illusion of sorts. But a Christian, a biblical worldview is going to situate you in true reality. First, that God is real. <laughs> that's, that's the first revelation. That's the first piece of reality. God, there's nothing more real than God. It situates you before that, and then everything else uh, flows out of that. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, so it gives you a lens but you're not automatically gonna see 2020. It gives you a compass, but that compass needs to be calibrated. You're gonna start, your, your affections, your heart's gonna be shifting towards more of the relative true north direction, but it still needs to be calibrated, still needs to be tweaked out a little bit. Um, the same thing with the map. Um, you become a Christian, and you don't overnight become a cartographer, okay? You don't become a map expert. You need help, it takes time, you need, you need guidance, and this is why di discipleship is so important. Like, you need somebody who understands at least a little bit more than you to help you navigate the terrain. So, um, this is, like I said, a lifelong journey, continually being reformed, continually deepening your understanding, um, and in that, as you continue to give yourself to this, going to the word of God, uh, your worldview becomes more and more consistent by God's grace, and because God doesn't lie, uh, gives us a great great sense of confidence in how we ought to live and be in this world. Now, that, that's part of why, um, all of that to say, that's part of why I'm not embarrassed to say, man, three years ago, my worldview was just, it wasn't all the way intact. It was inconsistent. And, and there, I'm sure there are still inconsistencies in my worldview where I'm at um, that still need to be worked out. But God has brought me a long way. And, and I, I, I credit that to God's grace and kindness in my own life. Um, and so I don't think that's necessarily something we need to be ashamed of. Uh, but but it is a, it, it's a good thing. Like we're learning to think God's thoughts after him. And so praise the Lord for that. All right, where am I on time? Any questions about that stuff? Thoughts? Origins of worldview? Okay, dope. Now let's talk about kinds of worldview. 
um, you would think that with all of the different backgrounds and cultures and all the different kinds of experiences and religions and, and all of the things that are in this world, that there would just be a whole slew of, of worldviews, like a smorgasbord of worldviews to choose from. But when you boil it all down, there's essentially only two worldviews. That's all there is, two, two worldviews. Um, I'll say it in an awkward way first in a way that'll make sense. First, there's a, a dependent worldview and there is an independent worldview. A dependent worldview and an independent worldview, or what would probably make more sense is there is a biblical worldview, which is the dependent worldview, and the humanistic worldview, which is an independent worldview. Now, here's what I mean by this. I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing many words from Gary DeMar as he explains um, the differences between the, the dependent worldview or a biblical worldview. He says, the idea of a worldview is not new, God interpreted the world for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, as submissive creatures made in God's image, were to view all of creation within God's evaluation and interpretation. God's word was and is the starting point in the construction of a worldview. Though Adam and Eve were morally perfect, they lacked total knowledge of God, themselves, and their world. They had a they had to depend continually upon God as the source of knowledge and understanding. As Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. He goes on. While God is not dependent upon anything outside of himself, man, even before the fall, is dependent upon God and has an incomplete knowledge. Without God as our source of knowledge and interpreter of reality, man would know nothing. It is only in God's light that we see, Psalm 36, 9. The Apostle Paul affirms God's independent and complete knowledge. He writes that in Christ, all, uh, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3. If man truly wants to know, he must understand that God teaches man knowledge, Psalm 94, 10. So a dependent worldview is simply saying we depend on God to know anything. An independent worldview, a humanistic worldview, operates on, on the other end of that. Where uh, Here's another excerpt. Satan intended to overturn God's moral order by convincing Adam and Eve that God's view of his word was only one view among many. So he's saying, did God really say like he's, he's suggesting that there, there's got to be other opinions out there. By persuading Eve to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Satan was leading her to develop an independent worldview that would compete with God's. And the enemy says, Satan says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, Genesis 3.5. The temptation involved more than a piece of fruit. It began a struggle over who would interpret all reality. So even going back to the Garden of Eden, right there around Genesis chapter three, what, at the very beginning was a biblical world, people uh, receiving knowledge, Adam and Eve are the people I'm speaking of, receiving knowledge from God that helped them make sense of the world that they lived in. But as soon as they started doubting God and started creating their own thing or, or letting the, the serpent's questions sort of provoke them to wonder, maybe there's another perspective here. Maybe, maybe there's another standard of right. This is what led this giant divorce between the biblical worldview and, and what Adam and Eve created. Archibald Alexander says, men may be 
induced to abandon their old religion and to adopt a new one, but they never can remain long free from all religion. Take away one object of worship and they will soon attach themselves to another. If unhappily they lose the knowledge of the true God, they will set up gods of their own invention or receive them from others. So there will always be a worldview, right? There's no neutrality. There's no, there's no in-between space that it's like I'm in between worldviews. There's, it's either a, a dependent worldview or an independent worldview. It's either a biblical worldview or a humanistic worldview. Now, the thing about the, the worldview of humanism, it sees man as the center of reality. So where, where God was, in the beginning God, the center of reality, God himself, the biblical worldview, a, a secular humanistic worldview sees man at the center of reality. Um, Man as an idol created by man for man. Humanism declares that a man can determine good and evil for himself, independent of God's view of reality. This was and is Satan's lie. By contrast, the Christian worldview declares that God gives the meaning, gives meaning to all of life, thus no fact in the universe can be adequately explained unless evaluated in terms of God's word. By rejecting God's interpretation of reality, man believes he can interpret reality independently, not realizing the consequences of distortion due to his own inherent limitations. Adam and Eve failed to recognize that their very existence and ability to think and depend upon God. Their humility and submission before God were replaced by human pride. Going back to what I said at the beginning, true pride right, leads you into a secularistic, a humanistic worldview, but true humility cements you right there in humility before God, um, a biblical worldview. Um, does that make sense, the, the differences between those two? Those are big categories, okay? Now, what, what we have to realize is, again, I've said it once, I'll probably say it again, um, ideas have consequences. So for them to think about this, that for them to think and interpret the way that they do, th- there's gonna spill over into real-world things, Real-world problems, real-world consequences for them to navigate and work through. Francis Schaeffer says it this way. Um, these two worldviews stand as totals, comparing the, the, the biblical worldview and the humanistic worldview. They stand as totals in complete antithesis to each other. So there's no compatibility, what he's trying to say. There's no compatibility between these two worldviews. They are at odds. They are hostile towards one another. They're the antithesis to each other and, and contend uh, in their natural results in, and oh, in content, sorry, and in their natural results. So not only in, in the, the, the presuppositions, the beliefs that they hold, but the way that things are gonna flow out from there. It's gonna be completely opposite. And he says, including sociological and governmental results and specifically including the law. It is not that these two worldviews are different only in how they understand the nature of reality and existence. They also inevitably produce totally different results. The operative word is inevitably. It's not just that they happen to bring forth different results, but it's absolutely inevitable that they will bring forth different results. They're two different paths. One leads you toward God, and, and one leads you further and further away from God. Okay? This is why we say ideas have consequences. What you believe about God what you believe about the world, what you believe about yourself is going to influence how, how you live. Um, now, I said, hey, there's two big kinds of worldviews. You boil it down to the, to the, the humanistic or the biblical worldview. Um, but, but really, there is, 
Um, it's sort of on a spectrum here. Uh, can I get somebody to run back to the computer that knows how to run the slides there? I got a graphic that I want to show you here. This is the only one I got. Um, so to help us make sense of this, because it's not like, it's like the North Pole. Um, we are all living in some, in relationship to the North Pole and the South Pole right now, okay? If the, if the biblical worldview is the North Pole, the humanistic worldview is the South Pole, there, there's a lot of space in between them. We're not all on the North Pole. We're not all on the South Pole. There's, there's a range in there, okay? Um, and, and the Nehemiah Institute has, has kind of created four categories, four different camps that help us make sense of, of where we might land as far as where does our, our worldview um, where is our worldview as far as is it consistent or inconsistent? Um, and so they, they lay this out. Um, the first one, I'm trying to make sure I'm, it's on the sheet too here um, that I, I've got for you. The, the first worldview, this would be the one that is, is most in line with God's word. They call it biblical theism. It says, a firm understanding of issues as interpreted from Scripture, the individual is allowing the Scripture to guide his reasoning regarding ethical, moral, and legal issues to determine correct and incorrect thinking. Truth is seen as absolute for all ages, for all time. So here, biblical theism, it's marked by a high view of God's word. Right? There is an absolute truth. It's disclosed to us in God's word. It's got a high view for this. Now, some of the key distinctives of someone who holds a, bibli a biblical theistic worldview or just a biblical worldview, um, they're gonna believe that God is sovereign over all areas of life. In civil government, um, it should be highly limited in purpose and authority um, and under the, the supervision of scripture. And then with this, all people will live in eternity, they'll have this belief, all people will live in eternity either in heaven or in hell as judged by scripture. So it's saying that there are limits, and we'll get into this in, in future days, um, future days or future seminars about of getting into some of the, the nuance of all these things or some of the layers of this. Um, but this is one of, this is where a biblical theistic thing, God is sovereign, it speaks to all of life, it's going to speak to the family life, the civil government, church, the, the ecclesiastical organizations, all of these things um, the Bible is going to speak to. The next layer down, uh, they call it a moderate Christian. They say it's basically one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. A blended view of God as creator and ruler, but man as self-determiner of the world. This position generally sees God as supreme in matters of religion, but not concerned with matters related to governments, economics, and to some degree, education. And the, the key distinctive of this is that God is concerned with the soul and eternal life. Man must control temporal issues. Now, I would, I would go out to say, at best, most of the evangelical world operates in the moderate Christian range, at best. I'm gonna show you a slide here in a minute that's gonna be uh, a little bit shocking. Um, that is crazy. But, but that's, I would think that's where a little bit, one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom, we, we believe that the salvation piece of things, but not necessarily the economics, the politics, the, the, all of that stuff, right? So does that make sense? And then we go down a notch, closer to the South Pole. You get uh, secular humanism, where it says man is supreme. So there's this rejection of God. Um, by chance, the human race has evolved to its highest form of life but has responsibility to see that lower forms of life are not abused by man. The masses are more important than the individual. 
Key distinctives, there is no biblical God. Man is the, the uh, predestinator and savior of the human race. Eternal life exists only in the sense of how each person is remembered for the good or bad he has done. Ethics are relative to each generation. This is very much where the lump sum of our culture is operating. And it's very, and, and, and might even, I'd say it could even go down a little bit further to the next one. Um, but it's in this secular humanism, man is supreme, this rejection of God, um, standards evolve, we know better now than we know then, God's changed his mind, so it's cool, don't worry about it, that's what secular humanism, that sort of worldview is gonna have, have those sort of mantras. And then you go down to the South Pole, and that lands you in socialism. Man cannot, says, here it says, man cannot prosper as individuals acting alone, a ruling authority is necessary to ensure that all facets of life are conducted fairly and in harmony. This authority, it's not God, rather it is the state, the civil authorities, with the elite of society serving as its leaders. So you see this, this, this gradation of moving away from biblical truth and into man's ideas, moving away from God's ideas into man's ideas. And with socialism, here are the key distinctives. It says that individualism is not good, a civil body politic is necessary with control of assets and redistribution of wealth as seen fit by leaders for the good of all. Basically saying, you can't think for yourself. Somebody else has got to do your thinking for you, right? Which is the opposite of a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview allows us to think, to use, to love God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind. Now, let me show this, this chart real quick. This for the last, since 1988, which is the year that I was born, um, the Nehemiah Institute has been running this, um, this set of, of assessments to help show um, where people fall um, as far as where they're at. Biblical theism, moderate Christian, secularism, socialism. Uh, you can't read that at all, can you? Great. Well, I'll read it to you. So at the top, right, at the top is biblical theism. That's the North Pole. That's, that's the true North the bottom, socialism, that's, that's the, uh, the, the humanistic worldview. So that blue line that hovers around that top red line, um, this is showing from 1988 to 2001 a, a wavering, a fluctuation of worldview. Um, and this line is specifically uh, it's from students that they survey from biblical worldview Christian schools. So let me just say this. I t we talked about what goes into shaping your worldview. This is gonna show you, like, yeah, it goes in, your education is going to be a piece of, of what shapes your worldview. In fact, a very important piece of what shapes your worldview. We see biblical worldview Christian schools, classical Christian schools like Morningstar Academy, which, and other schools. Just gotta put a plug. Um, you see that, that they're hovering right in, in the domain of they're teetering between biblical theism and moderate Christian. And these are, by the way, these are sophomores and seniors that they're, that they're assessing on their most standard. You go down to the next homeschool. Um, they didn't start this till a little bit later on. I don't know exactly what year, but you see that green line that they're, they're hovering right in the midsection of moderate Christian. That's fairly good. You go down to the next line, I think it's orange. This is a traditional Christian schools. And, and at the beginning of this assessment, back in 1988, they started very much in the moderate Christian domain, um, but 
but by the end of it, it gets down right in the middle of secularism. So this is, uh, this is basically Christian education that instead of understanding all of Christ for all of life or how Jesus affects every single subject, this is like a, a public school education except for there's a chapel attached onto it. That's, that's basically what they're talking about here. Um, and then you go down a line to that black line, you find public schools. And it starts, at its best in the 80s, it was at the bottom of the moderate Christian. It's worked its way down into secularism. And by the end of 2021, it's landed into the domain of socialism. And there's a box there that says 90%, 90-plus percent of Christian youth are in this box here, right at the bottom of secularism on the verge of, of socialism, which is alarming, Right? If a Christian worldview is the best thing you can give your kid, something to help them navigate life for all of, all of time and then pass on to the next one. And these kids are, are basically um, being trained by Caesar. Right? They're, they're being developed by Pharaoh. They're learning how to operate in the world in a way that is, is inhumane. It's, it's a way that's not going to lead to their flourishing. And so... These, these trends over the last 32 years, all of them have gone down except for homeschool and worldview Christian schools, according to their assessments. Again, this, their assessments here is not a collective composition here, but it gives you a general idea uh, of how education has formed and how it's reinforcing and supporting different worldviews. Um, now, you can easily kind of pinpoint the, the date where you were in school and find out this is probably where I am. This is probably my starting place. If you were educated in the public school or whatever school, you can go to that roughly, find that spot, and that's, that's probably where you're starting from right now. Unless you've done a lot of worldview work, unless you've, you've really tried to refine your understanding. Um, but it's better to start now than never. So I, I can't look at you, I can't, I don't have it like x-ray vision, say yep, you're there, or yep, you're there. Um, but, but it's just something that's be helpful to be aware of. Because if you would have asked me three years ago, um, what kind of a worldview are you operating from? I would say, yeah, totally biblical worldview. I tested in the moderate Christians. Like I got one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world and I'm pastoring people, right? It's kind of exposing gaps in my own worldview. So this, this all to say, knowing the lay of the land, knowing your starting point is helpful um, to start moving forward. Now that we, I'm, I'm gonna try to wrap up here pretty quick um, and actually get in some, some practical stuff. This will go quick. Now that we have a, a general understanding of what a worldview is, where it comes from, the two different kinds of worldviews, the fact that there's a, a bit of a, um, I don't know if you call it a spectrum of worldview of where you might fall in between the two poles, uh, we can start asking ourselves, how do we develop a Christian worldview? Because I, I hope that's what you want, right? You don't wanna stay stuck. I don't wanna stay stuck. I, I wanna grow um, and unless you've done a lot of training already, unless you've, you've done a lot of unlearning and relearning, because that's really what it takes, right, to move from one worldview to another, it's a lot of unlearning and then relearning so that you can operate more out of a, a biblical worldview. You, you have to have some of these pieces in place. Now, there are, are three things, at least three foundational pieces that must be in place if you're going to operate with a biblical worldview, Number one, a new heart. Your loves have to be impacted. There must be a new heart 
before the eyes of the spiritually blind can be opened to see God's view of his world. The desperately wicked heart that Jeremiah 17 speaks of must be removed and a new heart implanted. God says, I will give you a new heart and put in you a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart, uh, or stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, is equal 36, 26. The new heart gives life to another, an otherwise dead person. It's Ephesians 2. We're dead in your sins and trespasses. You've been made alive. The life imparted through this new birth makes the spiritually blind man able to see things of God. John 3, 3. So the first thing, to, to have a biblical worldview, you, you have to have a new heart. You have to be born again. And in being born again, God not only gives you a new heart, but he gives you a new mind. That's the second one. The mind must be renewed because the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Regeneration within an individual affects every aspect of his being. The mind changes radically and begins to be renewed continually by not being conformed to the world's way of thinking. This means we put off the old ways of thinking, the man-centered ways, the humanistic ways of thinking, and we put on new ways of thinking, God-centered ways of thinking. We must train the mind in biblical thinking so we can discern good and evil. Unless the Christian begins with God in his thinking process, he surely will not come to God's conclusions about the way he should act. So we have to be a new heart that loves rightly and a new mind that thinks rightly. And the third piece is a new standard. A new heart, a new mind, a new standard. The word of God must serve as the standard for equipping every Christian with all he or she ever will need to evaluate life. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The word of God projects a standard before which all other standards must bow. Experience Majority consensus, tradition, circumstances, or autonomous reason never can be used as standards of authority for developing a consistently biblical worldview. God's word, however, is perfect, Psalm 19.7 tells us. It's forever, Isaiah 48 tells us. It's trustworthy, it's a light, it's a fire, it's a crushing hammer, it's living, and it never fails to accomplish its stated purpose. The word of man is feeble and fallible, it cannot be trusted to evaluate his life and his world. So those are, that's the essential hardware that you have to have to start a, a, a biblical worldview, right? To, to get that thing up off the ground. A new heart, a new mind, a new standard. But here, here are things that you can give yourself to um, so that you can develop this biblical worldview. Start going deeper in your understanding of God, the world, and yourself in a new way. So what does this mean practically? We'll bring it back to a practical level. How do you, starting tonight, tomorrow, whenever, how are you, if, if you have been born again, you've got a new heart, you've got a new mind, the Bible is the final arbiter, how do you start developing a more robust uh, biblical worldview? Number one, you gotta love and read your Bible. Seems like a no-brainer. You gotta love and read your Bible. Allow it to shape your heart and mind in every way. Whenever you read a part of your Bible that makes you scratch your head, it's like, I don't know what I think about that. I don't know if I believe that. 
It's not saying that the Bible's wrong. It means that you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong, and you need to conform, not the other way around. So we love our Bible so much that we're willing to submit ourselves to it. It's God's word. It's, it's a gift from God. Now, this, this is both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think if you're trying to build a biblical worldview using only the New Testament, it's gonna be like running a race on crutches, right? It's not gonna, it's not gonna be fast. It's not gonna be effective. You gotta have both the Old Testament and the New Testament. When Christians neglect the Old Testament, there's a truncated worldview. We say, well, Jesus never talked about this. Jesus never talked about economics. Well, actually, Jesus did talk a lot about economics. You just don't realize it. But everything that Jesus said about economics is presupposed. It's presupposing things that were said, the, the, the foundation that God laid in the Old Testament. And that's true of the family. It's true of the education, politics, family, time management, finances, welfare and charity, social issues, all of these things. Like in, in the New Testament are spoken on even in a greater extent in the Old Testament. So Christians, we gotta love both. Gotta love both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, Francis Schaeffer, again. Uh, by the way, I was gonna have some books to show you. Um, let me, here's a, well, I'll wait till the end. Francis Schaeffer says, true spirituality, or, or in other words, a biblical worldview covers all of reality. There are things the Bible tells us that are absolutes which are sinful, which do not conform to the character of God. But aside from these, the lordship of Christ covers all of life and all of life equally. It is not only that true spirituality covers all of life, but it covers all parts of the spectrum of life equally. In this sense, there is nothing concerning reality that is not spiritual. Cornelius Van Til says it this way. The Bible is authoritative on everything of which it speaks. Moreover, it speaks of everything. So we have to have this understanding that, that God, has, God hasn't left, a, you know, put the big pieces in our lap and said, here, I sorted this out and I'm gonna rely on you to sort out all the other stuff. Like God speaks to everything. The Bible is reliable for every facet of life. Um, don't have time for that one. Uh, so love and read your Bible. The other one, um, which... To do so, let me, let me just back it up. So we talk about presuppositions, these foundational beliefs. To love and read your Bible means that you need to operate from the presupposition that God exists and speaks to his people. And he does so in the Bible. That it's, his word is trustworthy. You can go to it, you can rely on it, you can build your, Jesus says, right, the wise men built his house up on the rock. It's not just talking about Jesus, but the whole word of God, the, the whole counsel of God, building your house on that. Um, so it's helpful to realize because God speaks, the Bible speaks of everything, speaks authoritatively on everything. There is no secular sacred divide. There are no sacred things that God talks about and then the secular things that God doesn't talk about that you get to figure out. God talks about it all. There's no divide. All of life is quorum Deo. And when we think that the Bible doesn't speak on something, it's probably because it's an overlooked passage. It's probably one of those boring pieces of scripture that, oh yeah, nothing, like nobody was getting slayed by a sword or a slingshot or whatever, so I just skipped that part, right? It's, it tends to be those, those overlooked passages that are crucial for helping us understand a biblical worldview. So as you're reading your Bible, I encourage you, slow down. Like, what is God teaching me here about himself, about the world, about myself that can help shape my worldview? So there's that. Now, number two, um, 
as you love and read your Bible, we need to learn the meta story, okay? So what I mean by this, like we talk about this, the story of God, same idea. Um, first phase of the story, in the beginning God, starts with him. All reality starts with God. God is the foundation wherever our worldview is built off, off of God as the foundation, it's gonna collapse, it's inconsistent. So it starts with God. In the beginning, God, that's where it starts. Then we, we understand God created the world good, right? Garden of Eden, we see Adam. There's a lot of things that God teaches us in Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2. A lot, like a lot, a lot of stuff. In the created order of how things exist, about our place in the world, there's so much there in Genesis 1 and 2. And then we get to Genesis 3, and there's the fall, and after that, we just continue to see how sin is, is a prevalent piece of the story of, of God working to redeem his people, to give them promise, make covenant, that he's gonna deliver them, to save them, and that ultimately goes to Jesus and redemption. So we got God, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, or you could say consummation. Like, where are we going to? How is this thing gonna end? What's the end of the story? This meta narrative of the story of God shapes your worldview in a tremendous way. This affects how, like in really practical ways. So if you believe um, that this world is gonna get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and one day God's gonna show up and just take out all of the faithful Christians and everything else is gonna get burned up, that's gonna cause you to live a life that, that's not really focused on building things. Um, you're just gonna be focused on making it through this day. You're just gonna be focused on making it through this season of life or just life in general, so Jesus will take you to heaven. But if you're thinking as, as God is refining, like working through history to build his kingdom here on earth, and as, as the uh, gates of hell are pressing up against the kingdom of heaven and the church, they're not gonna win. They're not gonna take back ground, right? This is sort of an optimistic worldview that we ought to have as Christians is, is not necessarily everything's gonna go up and to the right. Like there's still gonna be persecution and difficulties as Christians, but God is doing something. In fact, think of it this way. Are there more Christians in the world right now than there were 2,000 years ago? Yeah. yeah. And, and how do you think that affects neighborhoods? There's, there's probably more neighborhoods, more households, more cities that have Jesus-loving Christians in them that are making a positive impact that makes their society, that makes their city a better place, right? And so as we see more Christians, that means God is working in more places to transform stuff. So we can have this optimistic outlook that Jesus is doing, he's, like we, our mission statement to renew the city, it's not just blowing smoke, right? Like we believe that God can actually renew our city. And, and having a, an understanding of the meta story, of the meta narrative, that, that gives us an optimistic outlet. So, so uh, that's the part number two. Check number three. To develop your biblical worldview, you need to check your presuppositions. You need to be more critical of the way that you think than you are of the Bible. And evaluate them. Like, why do I think this way? All right, well, and, and it might be like, it might surface like this. Um, you hear me preaching on Sunday, and I say something that, here's, thus saith the Lord, and I can quote a Bible verse, and you say, I don't like that. I don't, that doesn't sound right. Well, that means that you need to evaluate. What are your presuppositions? What are the things that are going on in your understanding, your framework of the world, and, and, do, and if that's your response to the Bible, those things need to be uh, ejected so that you can embrace something that is more consistent, something that's gonna actually uh, give you a framework to lead to flourishing. So check your presuppositions. What needs to be ejected? What needs to be tweaked? 
how do you bring, well, how do you bring your mind, your, your beliefs, uh, your heart in, in, in subjection to Christ? And number four, closing this up, develop a critical ear. Um, you cannot, if you want to develop a biblical worldview, you can't just take in content without scrutinizing it. You, listen, when I sit at home and watch TV or a movie, I'm, all, like, my, I'm always on alert. There's no such thing as just sitting back and relaxing, especially with my kids. I'm sitting there watching cartoons with my kids, and I'm thinking, what is this selling them? What's going on here? And how, how do I either need to stop it or correct it or give them a better solution in Jesus? So when we sit down to consume, whether it's a novel, TV show, what, you name it, whatever, we have to develop a, a critical ear to hear what we're actually hearing, to hear what's being sold to us, even with the news. All of this stuff. We have to guard our hearts and minds to know what's coming in and take every thought captive. So this critical year is really important that you just don't get tossed around by every, you know, the, the latest thought or the latest book or whatever it might be. So we have to develop a critical year. And, and the standard in which we evaluate things is not on the way that we feel, our emotions or public opinion. It's, again, the word of God, going back to God's word. Any questions about that? I'm doing pretty good on time. Any questions, thoughts? Does stir anything up for you? Leave you with something to chew on, I hope. You ready to get out of here? Okay. I got a couple of closing remarks here. Let me just say, I, yeah. Yes, Timbo. Oh, yeah. Great question. Okay. Um, I, the, to develop a worldview means you're probably going to have to read books that are above your pay, pay grade. Like if you really want to develop and go at it and give, this, give yourself to something like this, you're going to have to read guys that are probably dead and way smarter than you. <laughs> um, but I'll share this. I th- one of the books that has been so helpful for me, and I've, I think I talked about this a couple weeks ago, this book by Gary DeMar called God and Government. This is a book that it's, it's actually, you know what it is? It's a, a textbook uh, for one of these uh, Christian worldview schools. It's, it's, it was designed for Christian worldview schools for like sophomores and juniors. It's a, a, a government textbook. But it, he does such a good job of going through every little thing, and, and breaking it down from a biblical perspective. I, I would recommend that book. Gary DeMar, God and Government, great book. Another book that would be helpful, maybe not quite as big of a read, um, I think uh, Francis Schaeffer's book, I quoted him a couple times from it, um, The Christian Manifesto or A Christian Manifesto. Um, that one's pretty easy to read, I think. It, he... he Francis Schaeffer, if you don't know, he was a guy that right now, a lot of evangelicals look back on him and think he's this nice, sweet guy. But in his time, 60s, 70s, and I think he died early 80s, he was, he was a ruthless advocate for biblical worldview. 
right? So as things were secularizing, as things were, were liberalizing in the church, and, and you see this, these denominational splits that come from um, ordaining women pastors and, and gay and lesbian marriage and wondering about that stuff, and he was on there staying true to the path, and, and he's done a really good job writing a bunch of great books that help. You can at least see how a biblical worldview operates, okay? He'd be another guy. Um, for your news, because everybody listens to news, Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe it's smart not to. Um, there are, uh, Albert Moeller does a, a, every morning he does a pod, he wakes up at like four o'clock every morning, does a podcast called The Briefing. Uh, what does he say? News and events from a Christian worldview. So um, that would be a good place to go, help you interpret that. There's, there's other guys like um, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. These are guys that are pumping out content. They have a, a podcast called God, uh, what's it called? Cross Politic. Um, they're thinking, they're, they're demonstrating what it looks like to operate from a Christian worldview. Now, I will warn you, if you're new to this, that might not be the place where you want to start, okay? They're, they're you know, it's, it's an acquired taste, I would say, but they're right in what they say, and uh, you may not like the way they say it, so I'll leave that to your discretion. But those, those are places where you can go and you can see, here's what it looks like, here's a biblical worldview operating. I can actually see for myself and say, well, where did they get that? So, a couple ideas. That, does that answer your question? Okay. Um, any other thoughts, questions? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah, no, I think, here's, I don't know if, if I in my lifetime will see a, a complete recuperation of the ground that we've lost over the last 32 years. Um, I'd like to see that. I'd love to see our society move to more of a Christian society, right? Based, basically meaning that we are based in reality. Like, we're not trying to make up a false narrative or a false, right? That, I'd love to see that. Um, I think that it takes 100 years to take a seed of an idea to start to sprout and to really mature. Um, yeah. It, well, I, we, so sorry. We, we've got, there's another meeting that's coming in here, and we've got to clear out in about, 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, I wish that, I hope that's true. I think realistically studying history, it's a, like, I'm just saying this, it's a, it's a long-term project. Um, one that we will see breakthroughs, but the best thing that you can do, what I said at the beginning, the best thing you can give your child is a Christian worldview, right? If my wife and I, we've got four kids, we just, we just multiplied what we believe by four, 
And hopefully, you know, hopefully they stay to it. Lord willing, they, st- they, st- they understand the, the beauty of Christ and they don't veer from him. And, but that gives them a head start, right? And so in their generation, I just think whatever, whatever we've done, they could take that times four. And I know that there are a lot more families who think this way now. And so there's like, there's the brotherhood. There's, we're, we're moving together. We can see progress. So I, I, I do hope that's the case. And I'm not saying that's not gonna happen. It could happen. Like revival could break out. Totally. It's happened multiple times. It could happen. Um, but if it doesn't happen, we still gotta be committed to the long game. And our priority, our main focus is our homes. Um, how, do we, how do we develop our biblical worldview and then give that as a gift, as an inheritance to our children so that they can keep running with it and go even further, right? And that's, that's really how, how societies develop and grow and, and come to a place of beauty in, in, in God's eyes. Yeah, have more babies and then it'll go faster. Okay, let me say this, couple closing thoughts for you and then we're out of here. Um, So one of the things that I'm realizing, um, I I think it's possible. I think it's possible to to build a big church without emphasizing a biblical worldview. I think it's, if you go by lowest common denominator, if we can all just agree that Jesus is our savior, then a a church can grow really fast. Just evangelize, ba, 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 ba. Um, you can ima- agree on matters of salvation, but then if you try to do that, you try to grow a big church on the lowest common denominator, what happens is um, everything else gets treated as an open-handed issue. And when we talk about open-handed issues, close-handed, open-handed issues, to use that language, an open-handed issue makes it sound like it doesn't matter, right? It makes it sound like God doesn't say anything definitive about that, and so we can have different opinions, um, or, or it makes it sound like God doesn't talk about it at all. Um, what a, a biblical worldview does, it moves us uh, away from theological minima, minim, minimalism into theological maximism, if that's a word, maximalism, right? Of, of not just what's the least amount that we can agree on, but when we agree on the Bible and that it is God's word, it's trustworthy, it's the final arbiter, all of these other pieces fall into place. Now, there's a difference between growing a big church and seeing a kingdom movement. I, I do not think, I think a big church movement, a big church growth like that doesn't have the roots to go into this generational change that we wanna see, right? Three, four generations down the road. I think what carries us there is a biblical worldview, a, a biblical, like a, a right understanding of the world, God, our world, us, right? And, and that means that we're gonna have to move towards agreement on more things because then we can make statements that to some Christians might sound, whoa, what makes you say that? But then we get a hold of our Bible and say, well, the, the word of God tells us that. That's our confidence. That's, we're, we're placing ourselves under that. So if we wanna see a multi-generational kingdom movement, I think this is what we have to do. We start, we start now. We start developing our biblical worldview so it's consistent, it's comprehensive, and then we hand that off to our children. And by God's grace, the gospel runs with them. Like God saves them, God keeps them, God keeps them in the covenant community. Um, and then the movement happens, goes, goes and goes and goes. So that's why, that's why the stuff matters to me. Um, I think trying to, to build a generational movement without having this mentality, it's gonna flop real quick. Um, but otherwise, a biblical worldview gives us the legs for it. So 
We're gonna start breaking down into some more of these like specific topics over the next seminars that come up. I think, I think the next one on the docket is politics, so that'll be, that'll be spicy and fun, but it'll be great. So any, yeah, Jake. Yeah. Rationality. Definitely. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah, I, I've said it before, but I would rather be accused of taking the Bible too seriously than not serious enough. So let us do that. Let's take the Bible. Take God at his word. I'll pray. Father, I just thank you for these people coming out tonight, and I'm grateful, I'm grateful for the time that we had. I hope, hope this helps um, in some way. I hope this, I hope this is, seems like a, an invitation into knowing you um, and your world in a deeper way. Um, and as people give themselves to reading and studying your word, would you meet them? Would it be like you filling up their belly um, with your goodness and kindness and grace, um, your wisdom and knowledge? And in this, even with these, what, we got 40 people in here this, this evening, would something big start to happen here? These, these seeds um, that may take generations to grow, um, but in your grace, your providence, it could, it could happen in our lifetime. So allow it to be so, Lord Jesus. For your glory, for our good, for the good of our children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.